from Philippians chapter 3. Paul's letter to the early church. To people like you and me. Seeking to follow the Lord. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains for me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which, that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not myself yet, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. God always blesses the ring of God's holy word. Come Holy Spirit, lead us again. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pure and acceptable. Your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, I love our local dump. Uh, I guess the more official title for it is transfer station. Uh, I have transferred many things to this station. Uh, I'll be honest, I, I, I've been there with joy a number of times. As we've settled into our new house, oh man, the stuff we brought out here, you know, you move and you don't really know what you need. And we didn't even, as some of you know, we didn't, we bought our house from afar. Um, thanks to angels among us and God's blessings and all of that. You know, the wild thing of, of buying homes here. And then um, we moved and big old truck rolled up our, to our house. And you just never know what, you know, what you're going to need, right, till you get here. So we made a lot of exchanges and <laughs> got rid of some things and... That dump was um, invaluable, it turns out. 
But did you hear this thing apparently got so big, the mound of trash in this in our local transfer station got so big that they were worried it was going to spontaneously combust. Did you read about this? Oh my, apparently when you put a bunch of transferred things together in one space, they begin to break down and it can sizzle, I guess, and cause fire. And that's a problem. I guess they, I haven't been there recently, but it sounds like they were working on uh, sharing it (laughs) with other places, right? When you pile a bunch of stuff up, it can get unstable and it can be combustible. And thinking spiritually about this, when we put the wrong things at the center of our lives, they can be unstable, unreliable, and even explosive in the wrong way. And the the question Paul's writing leaves us with today is, what's at the center? Is it combustible refuse that can't really hold that that breaks down so that we're we're unstable or or even dangerous in our lives and we're vulnerable what when we put things that are not meant to be at the center in that place the pressures and 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 struggles of life impose upon them and and they break down right and they Sizzle, and soon there's smoke, and when there's smoke, there's fire. Is that what's at the center of our lives, or is it another kind of fire? The Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, who faced the biggest breakdown there ever could be in death itself, and then rose up on the other side of it, proving himself durable, able to hold that place. It turns out even good things put at the center can't replace Jesus. It turns out if what we allow to define us isn't stable, it can destroy us. When we put the wrong stuff at the center, it doesn't hold up. It breaks down. This is where Paul is going, but he starts with a warning. And he tells the Philippians, after what is in many ways been a very upbeat letter with a lot of rejoicing and a lot of confidence. And then he says, watch out. Chapter 3, verse 2. Watch it. And then he gets real vivid. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Well, Paul had opponents everywhere. Interesting thing about Paul, he had thorns in his side his whole career. People that dogged him and attacked him and were, as one scholar said, a constant thorn in his flesh. Two groups in particular, there were Jews and there were some Jewish Christians who were opposed to Paul's 
core teaching and beliefs. His focus here, we think, is probably the Jewish Christians who were pushing Gentile Christians to get circumcised. They said, you have to do this in order to be in. You know, Paul elsewhere speaks respectfully of Jewish uh, circumcision as practiced among Jews in Romans and Colossians and elsewhere. But what, according to one scholar, what infuriated Paul was the insistence that circumcision must be enforced on the Gentile Christians in order to make them full Christians. This is what the Judaizers were into. They were described by another scholar as those who were dogged on the trail of the apostles and endeavored to compel Gentile converts to submit to circumcision. You got to do this. It's not enough to trust in Jesus. You've got to be circumcised to be in, to be one of us. So in other words, the Philippian Christians apparently had people pushing them, hardcore Jewish Christians pushing them to get circumcised in order to be the real deal. And Paul condemns this. But notice what he does. He doesn't just advise them in terms of a counterattack. He doesn't say, Here's how to deplatform the the Philippian uh, the Judaizers who are coming upon you. Here's how to hit them back. I mean, he he uses strong language, but then notice where he turns here in the text. Rather than focusing them on attacking the opponents of Paul, rather than focusing the Philippians on saying you got to you got to condemn these people that are trying to get you to get circumcised as a Gentile Christian in order to be legit. He doesn't go that way. What does he do? He reminds them who they are. He tells them who they are. The best defense against people that would attack you and your identity in Christ and who you are as a Christian is not to focus so much on the attack. It's to focus on your identity. Who you are. If you hold fast when your identity is attacked to your identity, that's the way through. Paul actually uses his opposition's language in order to remind the Philippians who they are. He takes the language of circumcision and he appropriates it. He uses it. He says, oh, they're talking about circumcision? No, we are the circumcision. In other words, what has happened in the person work of Jesus Christ is so big that he converts terminology. He converts terms. Circumcision used to be in this. Now it means something much bigger because of Jesus. The blast radius of Jesus is so big that he changes the meaning of language. So now circumcision is seen in reference to Jesus and the reality of what he has done and, and what who he is. Paul writes that it is the Christians who are, verse 3, the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Jesus in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. It's no longer about the externals. It's about the internal reality that the whole thing was meant to convey in the first place. Truly circumcised people don't have confidence in the sign itself. They have confidence in God himself. Paul presses the argument even further. He says, look, if anyone should have confidence 
in the externals, guys. It's me. He says, I'm circumcised, verse 5. I've got this great Jewish background, Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee. Scholar K.A. Hart points out, this is quite a resume. Paul had been circumcised as a Jewish boy in accordance with the instruction given to Abraham and in accord with what the law prescribed in Leviticus. Furthermore, he was born of Israelite stock. He wasn't a convert to Israel. You know, he was born in. The blood of Jacob flowed in him. He belonged to the tribe of Benjamin, a fact he proudly acknowledged. This tribe alone had been faithful to the Davidic throne. It had given the nation its first king. By calling himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, he may have meant that he had no mixed parentage. The phrase may also refer to his linguistic and cultural upbringing, which involved Hebrew and Aramaic languages. Paul's pre-Christian life had been noted for promoting Judaism. He was a hardcore zealot. He attacked the church. He'd become an arch-persecutor of the church. When judged by men in accord with the righteousness the law demands, he had been blameless. So this is like if somebody came up to you in church and said, you know what, I'm a millionaire, and I want you to know, I really, I've got the goods, and and I control things around here because, you know, God's blessed me with money, and and I really run the show because I'm a millionaire, right? And you look at someone else that comes up in the conversation and says, you know what? Another person joins the conversation and they say, you know what? I'm a millionaire too. But I actually found something better. I have all the money in the world. I was an early investor in Apple, like uh, Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump, you know. And so uh, I've got all tons of money too. I'm a secret millionaire. I can make things roll around here. But you know what? I've given up on all that. I consider that rubbish because I found something even better. And money can't really hold the center anyway. I found the one who can. So you can't take it with you, but I know the one who, who will take me home. Something like that. Imagine that conversation. This is the pivot Paul makes. You know, Paul is spiritually, culturally kind of a millionaire, right? He, he could, he could play that. He's OG, if you will, spiritually, right? Original gangster, right? He could do that. But he's not gonna play by worldly views or even the spiritual, religious worldviews of what gives you power. And that's true with anything, right? Lots of things even can creep in the church and give us a sense of what's really powerful. The church can sound awfully worldly sometimes. It slips in, it creeps in. Whether your money or your accomplishments or your family name or your status or whatever. Paul says, lay that all aside. Because I can outplay you there, he says. Anyway, I can outplay anybody with that stuff. I'm OG, right? But he says, I have discovered something way more important. In fact, it's something so great it makes all that stuff look like garbage. I consider everything, he says, a loss. The Greek word is panta. That's a big word. He, he, he goes through that whole Jewish history, you know, gives you his bank account of all the things that should impress you, right? And then he, he widens it out. He says everything is garbage. Dr. Kent says Paul's thought broadens from his Jewish advantages just mentioned to include everything 
that might conceivably be a rival to his total trust in Jesus. Everything that might conceivably be a rival to his total trust in Jesus is set aside. He talks about his surpass, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Scholar Ralph Martin says this, because of all that Christ has become to him, Paul is willing to collect all his former privileges, his 401k, his family name, his his um, uh, prof- professor uh, tenured status, right? Whatever, right? His, his basketball championships, whatever, right? And he puts them all in one parcel and he says, he writes it off as a loss. Paul declares that he is, he is considered garbage. Even the recurring temptation to rely on anything apart from Jesus. His intention is to, in verse 8, gain Christ that I may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, I don't think we need to read this passage as saying all those things that we describe that he talks about are bad in and of themselves. I think the point is to say they can even be good things. The point is to say when you try to put them in the place that only Christ can be, they become garbage, like that pile of garbage over there, right? They can't hold the center. Life's pressures and struggles and pains press upon them and it creates like they said to the garbage, bacteria and stuff get in there and it eats away and it fumes and, and smokes. Those things could be good things, but they, they can't hold the center. They can't hold the pressures there. Jill and I both went to Princeton Theological Seminary and she was there 10 years after I did. She did much better academically than I did. I, mean, I did fine, but I think I had a 3-1. She graduated with a 3-8. I mean, she's got it going on. Um, it's good to marry people smarter than you. But anyway... Um, Princeton, you know, tends to attract people who are um, high achieving, and it was extremely intense atmosphere, and um, the pressures to do well academically were were intense, and it's very easy for that to become the center. You can imagine. And my first year there. I met a wonderful guy. I remember his name? I think his name was Ajit, and he was there from India, struggling or studying for a master's of theology. And he was struggling with this one particular course. I think he was actually the the president of a missions organization over there. I and I met him while I was studying. I think it was when I was studying summer Hebrew. And um, talk about being humbled. I think I brought this before. I went from being a high honors graduate of Lehigh University to feeling like lower than a footprint every day with Hebrew. Talk about being humbled, right? It just, it was, it was so hard. Ajit was struggling with a class. And as I recall, and I think he went to meet with uh, Dr. Loder, who was teaching the class. I never had Dr. Loder, but I heard he was an amazing man of God. And I think he went to complain register concerns about a grade he'd gotten. And as Ajit told me later, Dr. Loder said to him, well, Ajit, what does your grade have to do with your life in Christ? 
That was Dr. Loader. He knew, and Loader was, you know, Harvard grad. I think he studied at uh, Manager Center. I mean, he was extremely brilliant and well established, but he knew that even at Princeton, <laughs> there was only one true center, and especially places like Princeton and other high grade places, and anything in life really can vie for that center place, can be a place that's a rival for where you get your identity and your righteousness. But Dr. Loder's word for Ajit is it's not your grades that define you. That's not unimportant. But they can't be the center. And if you try to put them at the center, they will be proven to be rubbish. They will start to smoke. And instead of the fire of the spirit being at the core of your life, you're going to have the fire of garbage breakdown, right? I wonder what rivals your center to define your righteousness, success, status, bank account, grades, salary, how people look at you, how you get along, being liked. Again, I don't think our text is meant to say that these things have zero value. Remember the context. Paul is talking about the defining center. He's talking about righteousness, what makes you right with God, what is the core of what is defining of who we are. And I think Paul is would say that whatever value these other things in life have, their ability... To hold the center, their ability to define us is garbage compared with Jesus Christ. Even the best blessings of life become garbage when we try to put them where only Christ can be. But when the center holds, when we're held, notice Paul's language later, he says, Christ took hold of me. When we're held by the, the only one who is fit to be at the center... Then we have a righteousness that's through faith, a rightness with God. Righteousness, not just meaning moral rectitude or goodness, but righteousness as in right relationship. That's the Hebraic concept out of the covenant of the Old Testament. Righteousness being right with God. And yes, the righteousness and the goodness and the holiness of Christ given to us as a gift. And then, but it's within an embrace, that righteousness and that goodness given to us with an embrace. That's what defines you and me. Letting anything else try to do that, you're going to start to smell smoke, man. But when you let him and his grip and his hug define you and you let that work its way in your life, then you get a fire of another kind. Fire of the Holy Spirit. I love the psalm that says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That rock is Jesus. Here's an invitation to get out of ourselves. And paradoxically, that's when you're really freed to excel, right? When those things don't define you, when you know you have a righteousness from God that frees you, then you're freed from the fear of failure. You can you can go for it in that college class. You can run fast and take the risk in, in play on the field. You can take that risk in connection and relationship, right? You can take that bold project at the job because you know that whatever happens, good or bad, those things don't Define who you are. They don't hold the center. They can never do that. Only Jesus can. And your righteousness in him does it. Our righteousness, our status is not about what we can control because we can't. 
Our righteousness and our status is not about what we can attain because it'll never be enough. Our righteousness and our status is not about who we can impress because that turns out to be fickle and a moving target. Our righteousness comes through no other means other than through faith in Christ. Verse 9, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Theologian George Hansinger describes it this way. For Paul, this is not a righteousness based on the law, but one that comes through faith. It is an alien righteousness whose source and ground is to be sought apart from us in Christ. You and I don't have it in us, but we're given it. We're given it as a gift as he embraces us and he is alive. As Dr. Hansinger concludes, faith in Christ means union with him. It means fellowship. This is the embrace that we refer to. The restoration of that covenant connection that we find in Israel. The relationship with the God who runs toward us in the prodigal son story and hugs us. Humiliating himself and humiliating himself in Jesus in order to get to you and me and be that center. He's racing and moving toward the center. You could even say he's trying to shovel that garbage out of there and saying, no, this is going to kill you. Don't do this. It's going to explode. Let me be there and let me blow your mind and be the red hot core of your life. This is what the gospel offers. May we receive it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.